It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Film Festival Radio Show with me, Janice Malone here. And I am so excited about our show. We have a lineup. We have three powerful guests. They are just as diverse as apples, oranges, and thumbtacks. They're, they're just that diverse. And we are so honored to have all three of them joining us. A lot of show to get to. I'll jump right in here and tell you. We have guests from uh, MTV's hit show, Teen Mom, The Next Chapter. We have an opera superstar. Yes, opera. We have the one and only Renee Fleming will be joining us in a chat. And our featured guest on our final segment is personal manager, business entrepreneur, uh, very successful publicist to some of the world's most famous celebrities, household name celebrities. We're speaking of now author Ramon Hervey and some of the superstars that he has managed or done publicity campaigns for include Bette Midler, Vanessa Williams, Kenny Edmonds, uh, Babyface, uh, Little Richard, uh, worked with the Bee Gees, just a long, long list. And he has a brand new book out that you must read, especially if you are thinking about going into the entertainment industry, or maybe you are in entertainment. You might want to check this book out. You definitely should want to check this book out. Again, it's called The Fame Game. That's a short title. But I'm going to shut up and get to our first guest because we have a lot of guests to tell you some really cool and wonderful uh, things about their careers and their lives and what they're doing. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with our first guest. Hey, I'm Sherry Shepard and you're listening to Film Festival Radio with Janice Malone. Okay, we are back and we have so many guests that we need to get to. I can't wait. I just can't wait to talk to some of these people. But let's start with our first guest. So many of you out there are familiar with the uh, hit MTV, now franchise series, Teen Mom. Well, my first guest is one of the original Teen Moms from the hit TV series, 16 and Pregnant. Remember when that first came out back in 2009? Well, my guest is Macy Bookout McKinney, and she was one of the original cast members of that show. And since then, she has gone on to become uh, not only a successful TV personality, she's written, I believe it's two New York Times bestselling books about being a teen parent. Now she is a part of the new MTV's continuing the franchise series, uh, Teen Mom, the next chapter, which airs Tuesday nights on MTV, 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific time right here in our time zone, of course. But this, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure many of you already have, this series combines uh, the, the ladies, young ladies from Teen Mom OG with Teen Mom 2. 
And all of these young ladies are in different stages of parenthood now because their teens are now teens and some of them have uh, younger children now. So, and, and some of them are now married. So everybody is experiencing young adulthood at different phases, much, much different, of course, as back when they were teenagers. But it all makes into great television programming because MTV keeps showing us different uh, series of uh, Teen Mom. So uh, Macy Bookout McKinney, again, she is one of the cast members. She is now a married lady. She has uh, three children. She has her, her son uh, from when she was on Teen Mom's, uh, not Teen Mom, uh, 16 and pregnant. She has his is now, I think he's about 13 or 14. We'll ask her and see. And now she has uh, two younger children. She's married and she's living a life as a young adult mom, wife, parent. So let's roll it in my chat with Macy Bookout McKinney, one of the cast members of MTV's Teen Mom, the next chapter. Let's hear it. Great. And you have Macy on the line. Well, hello, Macy. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I am just wonderful. Sipping us some mint tea so that I can talk to you clearly without a scraggy voice here. <laughs> so, well, that anyway. sounds wonderful. You're gonna. I'm, I might go make some after this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good idea. Well, now, as we all know, you are a part of the the cast of the MTV hit show Teen Mom, The Next Chapter, which airs Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific time again on MTV. So this is a show where the cast from Teen Mom OG and Teen Mom 2 are together. You've got you ladies, I should say, have different stages of motherhood. And so now where are you as far as motherhood uh, and the ages of your children? So my oldest son will be 14 next month, and my daughter is seven, and then my youngest son is six. Wow. 14 already. We just, it seemed like it was yesterday when we first met you from, uh, you were one of the original cast members of MTV's um, 16 and Pregnant series, and now you have a teenager on your hands. That's, that's amazing. Yes. Yes. I'm not sure where the time goes. It, it's flown by. Well, so now that you have a, a, a teenager in your hands, so you're obviously in a different phase of motherhood, what are some of the things that you and your husband are having to deal with as far as issues in uh, society with, you know, talking to teens? Uh, what, what are some things you're, you guys are dealing with as parents? Honestly, I feel like we're dealing with everything that comes with a teenager of, you know, Obviously, typical teenage things like right now, I think the biggest, the two biggest struggles are um, definitely like us as his parents, like we don't know anything. Like he he's at that age where he he wants to figure things out on his own and and think the way he thinks and do what he does because you know. Mom and dad don't know, they don't know what they're talking about, but also the, the forgetting things. So he plays sports and it's, you know, usually about lunchtime, at least once a week, we're getting a text like, can you bring my golf shoes? I forgot them at home. Or 
I forgot, you know, my hat for for the baseball game or whatever. So those two, I feel like those are pretty typical normal things. But I'd say outside of that, the biggest thing is social media. I mean, when I was his age, social media wasn't really a, wasn't really a thing. It wasn't really a a variable in in life. And now raising a teenager and social media being the the thing, the main thing, and as big as it is, is kind of scary because there's already no rule book for parenting, but there's definitely not a rule book for parenting social media. So, yeah, that is a lot. That, that I mean, even us adults are dealing with the oh, the ups and downs of social media. So I can only imagine what parents are uh, having to constantly deal with with that, but. You know, in in your case, uh, you literally grew up before our eyes on television. So, what was it like when your kids when when did they first realize that you were uh, and are I should say a television personality? Your 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 teen son. What age was he when he realized that you you're on television almost every week here? Um. I feel like because all of my kids were basically born on TV, um, it's never, I've never really had to just, you know, come out and say like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm on TV and have been for, you know, longer than you've been alive. But so for them, it's it's kind of normal. Um, they've always been used to me being recognized in public or used to, um, you know, production being in our house and filming and things like that, because the, the, the production crew is, is pretty much family to us. Um, and so for them, it's, it's kind of just normal life, which is very strange when I say that out loud. <laughs> I realize that it is not normal life, but I think it's, just, it's our normal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank God I don't have cameras in my house, especially right now. Ooh, not a pretty <laughs> sight here. Well, now, Macy, what have, you know, as you said, your son is 14. Have you and your husband already started talking to him about, you know, being a teen parent? Because that's what happened, you know, with you and, and how you, uh, you know, we came to know you. Have you guys already had that talk yet or what? Yeah, we have actually. Um, I feel like our parenting style, we have very open communication. Um, it's it's always a safe, safe space. And I feel like that's what we really try to, number one, create for our kids. But, um, you know, we nothing is ever really off limits. So we we in fact have had a few awkward and difficult conversations already <laughs> oh my goodness well i think uh, in this day and time you really can't start too early so what about with your younger children your uh daughter and other son you already started kind of talking to them about this topic yet or what um i would not necessarily as far as um you know pregnancy or um, protection, things like that. But, um, you know, obviously conversations just about, you know, safety and their body and boundaries and, you know, 
things like that. Um, but definitely nothing, nothing too, too terribly crazy or um we just we try to keep it as age appropriate as possible but like you said i feel like it's age appropriateness is so kind of all over the place right now um so we just try to do the best we can well now uh my final question here before they cut me off is that you also are a new york times best-selling author uh any other upcoming books in the works or what um, not at the moment, but I uh, would not be shocked if you ask me that question again next year, I will probably have a completely different answer. Ah, okay, okay. And finally, Macy, how can listeners say hello to you and maybe just uh, say, hey, you're doing a good job, or maybe they got questions for you. How can they reach you on social media? Uh, my Instagram handle is Macy Deshawn Bookout. And on Twitter, it's Macy Bookout, just my first and last name. Um, and then they can also watch the show Teen Mom next chapter on MTV on Tuesdays. Okay. So I think that's I got how they can watch me and, and get in touch with me. Okay. I think I have two quick minutes left. I'm going to squeeze this in really fast. Uh, have you remained in touch okay. with any of the other cast members from um, uh, 16 and Pregnant over the years or what? Yeah, um, myself and Caitlin and Amber, um, the three of us were all on the original 16 of Pregnant and the original Teen Mom, and we are actually extremely close on on the show and, like, off the show in real life. Um, and then Cheyenne as well, who joined our cast um, a few years ago, we are we're very close and have a, a really solid bond. I think, you know, all of us being young mothers, but then also living our lives publicly and sharing everything with the world. It's kind of, it creates just a, a special bond that, you know, you can't really get with, with just anybody. Definitely. So yeah, you, you ladies have a different kind of unique sisterhood. So that's good to hear. Very good to hear. Yeah. Well, again, it's Teen Mom, the next chapter, Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific time on MTV. So, Macy, thank you so much for giving us a little insight about what's going on with you and your family. And we will hopefully maybe talk to you next year with a possible new book will be coming out. All righty. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Ask anyone around the world what springs to mind when they think of Paris, and they'll probably tell you the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, cafes and croissants, or the treasures of the Louvre. But there's one more thing that's celebrated in Paris. I'm Renee Fleming, and I've been lucky enough to experience great opera all around the world. But in terms of opera je ne sais quoi, there's no place like Paris. So welcome to my world of opera.
Okay, that was a promotional announcement from Renee Fleming, a true opera superstar. Multi-Grammy Awards. I mean, how many does she have now? I know it's over four of them, eight, six. It's a lot of multi-Grammy Awards that she has under her belt there. And she has performed at some of the world's leading opera houses and concert halls. She uh, received the U.S. National Medal of Arts Award. She's also the first woman in the 125-year history of the Metropolitan Opera to solo headline an opening night gala. She has sang with Pavarotti, with Sting, Josh Groban, Elton John, just to name a few. So she's big in the opera world as well as recording with pop artists. And now, as she stated in this promo announcement, she is debuting on IMAX, one of the world's largest, if not the largest movie theater screens throughout here. Tomorrow night, One Night Only, is a new film that will showcase Renee Fleming in concert, as well as her traveling throughout the beautiful city of Paris, France. Yes, and it's a one night only performance and film. Got it? Okay. And I am just so delighted to be able to tell you about it as well as uh, interview her about this shortly. The title of the film is Cities That Sing Paris. Quite simple, straight to the point. Cities That Sing Paris. And again, it's a film that will showcase Renee Fleming in concert. She will be walking, riding, just traveling throughout the City of Lights and taking fans to some of her favorite spots, uh, favorite restaurants, favorite places to showcase, as well as giving us some history about uh, the beautiful city of Paris. And again, this will be shown tomorrow night only at select IMAX theaters throughout the world. And as a special treat, this is really going to be special. Actor and producer Kelsey Grammer will moderate a discussion with audiences from around the world live with Renee Fleming, and they will have the opportunity to ask questions directly to Renee with Kelsey Grammer moderating. Again, this will be in select IMAX theaters tomorrow night only. And if you would like to get tickets to see the film and to be a part of, maybe you will get selected. Your question will get selected to ask her some questions. Go to the website, tickets.com imaximax.com and there you can get all the details get your ticket and be a part of this very special night tomorrow night especially if you are an opera fan now I had the opportunity to chat with Renee Fleming yesterday morning. It was only for 10 minutes, but hey, I'll take it. And I gladly did. And she was just a delight to chat with. So let's roll tape with my chat yesterday morning with the one and only opera superstar, Renee Fleming. Good morning. Well, it is such a great opportunity to chat with you about this upcoming Film and performance, Renee Fleming's Cities That Sing Paris, uh, September 18th and October 30th. So I understand on September 18th, in addition to the uh, film, which will be shown in IMAX theaters around the world, actually, you will also participate in a live conversation that will be simulcast that's moderated by Kelsey Grammer. So that has to be an enjoyable treat for all of us. So is this your first time working with Kelsey? 
Yes, thank you, Janice. Yeah, we I heard him perform actually in Man of La Mancha in London. And I had met him at a couple of events and uh went backstage and told him how terrific he was. So I'm excited to, that he's that he's so interested in this and he wants to really share it with the grand the larger public is uh is a delight. And in addition, I uh, understand that this live Q and A uh, fans will get the opportunity to ask you questions directly live again at IMAX theaters around the world. So I, I know I know people, especially media, ask you some of the most outrageous, ridiculous questions. Being a celebrity, but are there any particular questions or topics that you wish that your fans would ask you about that you'd love to talk about or be asked? Well, I love the repertoire. I mean, I love the fact that we're highlighting the greatest hits of French opera. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping they're curious about that and want to know more. And of course, um, I always love to remind the audience that we're the only singers, I think, practically in the Western world, certainly, who aren't amplified. There's, there are no microphones for us. So, and that's, you know, that's a different style of singing. So I hope people are curious about why, what is different about opera from other things. Well, what I'm, one of the things I really love about your career is that in addition to being an, an mega opera star, you have also shared your talents to pop music stars as well. I mean, my goodness, you've performed with people such as Elton John and Sting, Paul Simon, just so many. Uh, are there any other pop singers or, or maybe another genre of music of uh, singers that you would like to sing with or you dream about singing with or, or, or what? No, but I, I love uh, working with new artists. I mean, you know, the collaborative aspect of what we do, the breaking down of, of genre walls has really benefited all of us, I think, because we share now in the richness that music has to offer. And it doesn't matter what your style is or where you come from. There's always room for collaboration. Um, I'll be opening the um, uh, the uh, Lincoln Center and Geffen Hall uh, with a bunch of with a lot of pop stars, and so it's it's been fun to kind of figure out what to, how I would contribute. Uh, and of course, Luciano Pavarotti and the Three Tenors they really open things up as well. Um, Bocelli is a huge star, and I you know I think people love beautiful music, and so this is a chance to do it. And they also love Paris. So it's fabulous that you can see Paris in a new light um, with IMAX cameras that are out incredible. It's the filming of this is not like anything you'll see. Now, I understand that in addition to wonderful music, uh, that people will also have you exploring a unique art and history and the cuisine of Paris. So give us a little more hints about that. Well, to be able to, for, for instance, be able to go into the studio of a great couture designer who's created extraordinary costumes for me in this piece, Alexi Mabilla. He's one of only 14 authentic couturiers. Uh, to be able to go to um, an old historic wine shop and talk about wine with director Robert Carson uh, and and to have extraordinary singers with me on stage, Piotr Betsawa, Axel Fagno, and Alexandre Duhamel, and the last two are, are young French singers, and they're they're so beautiful. So I, I wanted to share emerging talent with the audience as well. We go to an old record store, an actual vinyl store, and talk about um, the culture of Paris and who the great singers were. Maria Callas, of course, we talk about. 
So I think, and it's in the, uh, my favorite shot is on the roof of the Châtelet Theater, which has the most spectacular view of Notre Dame and the Arc de Triomphe and all of the really stellar um, uh, places in Paris that we all want to go visit. Well, I can't wait to see this uh, old record shop. I'm such a vinyl head. I just will not give up vinyl. I just won't do it. So I can't wait to see this. <laughs> Good well, for you. Oh, yeah. I, st I just love it. Well, now, tell me, um, do you? what are some of your best memories of the very, very first time that you performed in Paris? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, it was over the holidays. It was the marriage of Figaro, and I was uh, the understudy for the first five performances, and then I got to do a few at the end. Um, and I fell in love with the city. That was it. I, I, I got an apartment there. Um, I sang there almost every year for about a decade. And every time I go to Paris, I walk the streets and go to all my favorite places. Oh, I know that's so special. So this is like, now how often do you perform in Paris? Uh, is it more than once a year or is it every year or what? <laughs> Um, now I'm still, I'm doing the, um, I'm playing Pat Nixon in, uh, the opera Nixon in China, which has never been done in Paris. So it will be a fabulous, uh, debut in that role. I've never sung the role either. And of course, um, it's an iconic American opera. So that's, that's very exciting. I'll be in Paris, um, uh, in late winter, uh, at the, um, the grand opera there. So I, I, I'm very excited about going back and I, I've been there. I did a gala there last year in Chanel and, you know, Paris is, you can't go there and not think about, um, and not think about design and, and couture and not think about great food. Oh yes, most definitely. So, well, finally, is there a dream opera role that you have not played that you are eager or anxious or look forward to playing one day or what? Well, I'm doing The Hours this fall at the Met. Um, the Hours is based on the film, and it's um, so gorgeous. I'm very excited about this new new, new venture. And uh, and then with Nixon in China, and I don't know what will be after that. There's nothing that I'm, I'm mostly concertizing now and creating projects. I've been touring this extraordinary piece about uh, that's a setting of George O'Keefe's letters, and these are the kinds of things I'm really enjoying right now. Okay. Well, again, the... Big film is coming out September 18th, Renee Fleming's City That Sing Paris. IMAX theaters around the world, and again on September 18th, a live Q&A with the one and only Kelsey Grammer, where you fans can get to ask her questions. So I got my questions answered early, so thank you so much, Renee, for chatting with me this morning. Thank you, Janice. And we'll Take see care. You, we'll see you on September 18th. Bye-bye. All right. It's the one and only Big Producer Queen Diva, and you're listening to Film Festival Radio. Girl down. You heard me. For the cool. Even though you
back with more of Film Festival Radio Show. And that song is probably one of my favorite R&B songs. And it's by the one and only Kenny Edmonds, also known as Babyface. And it was a huge hit, of course. And this song introduces our final guest for this show. And we're talking about the former manager of Babyface, and that is Ramon Hervé II. And he is a pioneer in the music, just say the whole entertainment industry. He's a trailblazer. He's one of the most successful and acclaimed and respected public relations expert and personal managers. And he has a brand new book. It's titled The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes. Now, Ramon has done it all as far as the business side of the entertainment industry. He's earned global recognition for his work as an entertainment manager, a brand consultant, and a public relations specialist. When these superstars make a funky mess in their careers, and we know they do, Ramon Hervé has been the public relations guru, the go-to expert that they often turn to as their spin doctor to help spin it all back in place. And this new book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes, Ramon presents a really fascinating, informative retrospective of his career as he's represented an impressive roster of superstars that he's worked with personally. Names such as Paul McCartney, the Jacksons, the Commodores with Lionel Richie, film stars like James Caan and Nick Nolte. He's managed his ex-wife, singer, actress, Broadway star Vanessa Williams, again, Kenny Babyface Edmonds. He's managed Little Richard, Rick James, Richard Pryor, even Major League Baseball star Lou Brock. Worked with Quincy Jones, worked with all kinds of Motown stars. So he's he's been there as far as entertainment. And again, this new book, The Fame Game, it is a must read, I think, for anyone who thinks they want to be famous, 
if you think you want to be in entertainment, you need to read this book to get a behind the scenes look at some of the stories at of what it is really, really like from a man who was there. He was right there, up close and personal. This book is about 300 pages long. And I read this book in less than two days. I just enjoyed it that much. So I am so proud to present this interview to you with Ramon. We recorded it just a few days ago, and I know that you will enjoy it. I could have talked to him for hours, but go get the book, The Fame Game for short. And now let's listen to my recent interview with the one and only Ramon Hervé II. Let's take a listen. Hey, um, let's just jump right in here. Um, the full title of your book is The Fame Game, an Insider's Playbook for Earning Your 15 Minutes. And I like that 15 minutes part there uh, on the end there. But for the, for the sake of the interview, we'll just call it The Fame Game, if that's okay with you. Oh, that's fine. Okay. Now, um, you are, as we, the world knows, you are the founder of your own management and PR firm that you have just done just amazing work for nearly 40 years managing and doing the major PR campaign for, for A-list celebrities around the world. Uh, one of the things I thought was also so cool about you before you got into the entertainment business that you were a flight attendant for Pan Am and you once owned a 65 Dodge that didn't go in reverse. That was so cute and funny. <laughs> yeah, those were... Uh... Two uh, different times in my life, actually. The first, um, I, I was a flight attendant for Pan Am uh, back in the early 70s, mid-70s, and it was one of the first black uh, male uh, flight attendants that Pan Am uh, hired uh, for many years. Um, they didn't have blacks and they didn't have men. Uh, a lot of European airlines did have men, but uh, they pretty much started hiring blacks and a few men at the same time. So I killed two birds with one stone. And I was based in London, England. And while I was in London, England, that's where I first uh, got uh, involved in, in the entertainment industry. Well, you know, not only were you a manager and, well, before you became a manager, uh, a top PR person, director, all of that, you were the, I would call it, you were the Olivia Pope before there was an Olivia Pope, because you were so, such an expert at handling crisis management for these uh, celebrities. Do you think, am I on to something with that or what? Well, I started off in the business and in, in the uh, PR side of things, um, uh, that Andrea Pope and the scandal, that, that, that's really, that's television, and it's not really representative of real, even real PR and entertainment business. I mean, she was involved in, I, mean, I, I thought it was, a, it was a cool show, but it's not very realistic. That's not what my, me and my peers have to do on an everyday basis. But I think what you learn, um, you know, when you work, the more famous the clients are, then the more... Uh, the higher level uh, of upheaval comes with a crisis and, and a management of it. And that's more change with the impact of social media because social media is more visceral reaction. You know, people now can react from seeing something happen 
um, within a matter of seconds, like what happened with Will Smith. Uh, during my early days of PR, that could not, never have happened. Um, the likelihood of that happening and spreading so quickly would not have happened without social media, even though he picked, um, you know, the Academy Awards show is one of the more, it's had pretty good ratings for many, many years. So when you're on the biggest show, one of the biggest shows on television and you have social media uh, escalating the crisis uh, in a matter of seconds, that's very difficult to, you know, to manage and to, quote unquote, we're often called spin doctors, um, but it's very hard to spin something in, these, in the paradigm of today where social media, again, has people have access to the story so quickly and it's, once they see it then it's it, uh, it's hard to change their minds have, about what they saw have you been uh asked over the i would say within recent years now that in this era of social media have you been asked to come in and play spin doctor for certain scandals and conflicts with a lot of celebrities and you turned them down or what um, occasionally it has happened. I really don't do PR anymore and haven't for probably 20 years. You know, I started the first leg of my uh, first decade or so of my career. I, you know, I worked for a big PR company called Rogers and Cowan, uh, which was one of the first, uh, which was the first major independent PR company in Hollywood. Um, before that, uh, the studios controlled all, were pretty much controlled all everything. They managed the stars, they represented them as agents, as, as publicists, uh, everything, they controlled everything. So they were more treated as employees. And PR really didn't start until, uh, they weren't allowed to hire outside people. So I worked at that firm. Um, and then, you know, after doing that for a dozen years or so and having my own company, that's when I transitioned into management and I've been doing management uh, and brand consultancy for the last, you know, two decades. But a couple of times over the years, I have had an opportunity and people have called me um, to ask me my opinions on how they should handle a particular crisis. Um, and, you know, my key to uh, something that I learned and that I feel is the strongest about managing a crisis is to be aware and out in front of it before you respond so you know everything uh, that you're responding to. And I think that that's a lesson that a lot of people don't take because you can have a knee-jerk reaction. And also, if you're lying, um, it causes uh, – It's. I always think that one lie – is, is followed by more lies. So knowing what the crisis is, uh, involves, um, how, what the collateral damage is and, uh, being able to tell the truth are, are things that I think are really important in any kind of crisis management. One of the people that you once managed was one of my all-time favorite performers, Little Richard. Uh, I, I really love that you share in the book, again, the book is The Fame Game, uh, you share an incident uh, when Richard was a part of, on the cast members of Down and Out in Beverly Hills, uh, starring Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Bette Midler and such. I just love the, the ending of how this, this was a conflict. Uh, I'll sum it up. Richard, in the middle of filming, suddenly informs you that he can't film past 8 p.m. because of religious beliefs and reasons and 
how the director of the film handled the situation. I just love that. Can you just pick up and tell us how that ended? Well, it was a situation where, um, you know, I got to this, uh, we were shooting on location in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills, and um, Richard, uh, it was his first day of shooting. Um, he had never worked on a film that I was aware of in an acting role um, where he actually got to play a character. But Paul Mazursky, who was the writer, producer, director of it, um, uh, producer, director of it, he was a huge fan of Little Richards and really wanted him in the film. Because I told him, look, I don't even know if he can really act. Um, but if you're willing to give him a shot, you know, we can try to you know, put him with an acting coach, whatever. And he says, don't worry about it, Ramon, we'll make it work. So on that first day of shooting, we're sitting in a trailer. And I said, well, Richard, you know, you're probably not going to shoot till about, start shooting till about 8 p.m. This was maybe, maybe four hours or five hours ahead of time. And he said, oh, oh I can't, I can't shoot uh, past five, past sundown, because he was a Seventh-day Adventist. And it was a Sabbath, uh, and I just said, wow, you got to, you know, you, you never told me this, and we have a contract and whatever, but we can't get out of doing this. They can't move this whole shoot day just to accommodate you. That's not going to happen. So Paul Mazursky came in, who's Jewish, and he uh, commiserated with Richard in a way in which he, he brought Richard to tears, basically. And he was just, he said, you know, if I were, I know, you know, you have strong religious, probably stronger religious convictions than I have. But I think if God was here right now, I think he would tell you that it's okay for you to follow through on your commitment. And I think that he would forgive you. And he had Richard like eating out of the palm of his hand. And Richard, you know, but he started, had tears in his eyes. And then he finally just agreed to, um, to do the shoot. And uh, it was just, a, you know, sometimes like you can, you can exasperate a problem and make it even worse um, by fueling it instead of trying to be uh, to solve a, a problem. What's the fastest way to solve a problem? Which is the approach that I always take, and that's why, to me, I couldn't solve that problem alone, and I needed to get the director to um, step in and see if there was a way that he could, you know, massage and get Richard to do uh, what he had signed on to do and uh, it ended up being a funny night all the way around but a good night and, and Richard you know got through it and uh, yeah it was a great it was a, it was a very memorable evening I think I would have taken Paul to a big steak dinner after that that was just beautifully done yes he was uh, he was magical and uh, and he was a very good person to, you know he he was so good because all the people in that movie, in fact, the, all the leads in that movie were clients of mine, were former PR clients. At the time that I did that film, I was managing Little Richard. But before that, I, while I was at that company, I mentioned to you earlier, Rogers and Cowan, I represented Bethel, I represented McNulty, and I represented um, Richard Dreyfus, And they were all on doing comebacks, and Richard was more or less attempting a comeback. So the fact that he was able to pull all these people together at pretty much down times in their career um, was was a, was, a, was pretty amazing that he was able to pull that off with everybody. Not just Little Richard, but all, you know, the other, the, the actors too, because it really, it rejuvenated all of their careers. The success of that film not only rejuvenated 
helped to rejuvenate what I was trying to do with Little Richard, but it literally re rejuvenated all three of those those actors' careers simultaneously as well. Yeah, it definitely did. In fact, after I read that chapter, I wanted to go and find uh, the movie and just watch it all over again because it's such a such a, a great scene, great moment there. Well, I want to step back in time again with you as a publicist. It's, it's 1978. Jet Magazine has this split cover shot of the Bee Gees and the OJs on the cover with the headline, White Stars Crossover and Get Rich on Black Music. And at the time, of course, the Bee Gees are the hottest thing in music. Disco is just blazing around the world. And, and, and the Bee Gees are your clients. So you see this. What do you do on that day? Well, the, it, they, were, they were my client. I did day-to-day -day work on them. I didn't sign them to Rogers. They were a Rogers and Clown client. And my boss came to me because I was the only, because I was working actively on the Bee Gees, but also because I was the only black but I didn't see it until my boss brought it to my attention. And he said, have you seen this? And I said, no. And he goes, well, the Bee Gees are infuriated and they want to do something about it. And they're asking me to, they want to give your advice on what they should do. And so I put together uh, three different scenarios on how we should deal with that. And, and the first one was really just to ignore it because Jet, um, to their audience, I didn't think that a lot of people were really familiar with Jet Magazine. I mean, they were big pop artists. They were the number one pop artists in the world at that time. So I didn't think that most of the people that they would be most concerned about. Uh, but the, the idea that they were pilfering or stealing music, uh, that really rubbed them the wrong way. So I suggested we could, you know, bypass it uh, completely. We could, I could try to get a retraction in Jet. Um, or they could send a letter to Jet, and we could do something a letter to the editor, but I don't know if you remember Jet, but Jet was not big on retractions. Uh, no. uh, if, they, uh, if they did one at, at all, it would be probably two or three sentences at the most, and it was buried. It's not like if you sent a letter to the editor to the New York Times or the LA Times or a bigger newspaper. And then the third one is to do something more on a philanthropic level, just to show that they were socially conscious about the fact that this was um, uh, bigger than just them, or the story was really about the fact that this it 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 took advantage of the, of the Bee Gees um, in a way they weren't they were caught off guard. They were, we didn't participate in this article, and they were trying to sell magazines. The fact that the reality is that black music has been a trendsetter back since the 50s when Elvis Presley and, and rock and roll started. And, you know, people like Little Richard, their songs were completely ripped off and just done by white artists. In this case, this was a movement of music where it did incorporate some black elements, but it wasn't as cut and dry as the Bee Gees doing. They weren't trying to do the OJs. You know, they were they were part of a movement, as you 
notice. Uh, and there were a lot of black artists who were also engaged and uh, were thriving in the disco business, uh, the music. Uh, not the, not per se the OJs, but they picked them as an example. Um, so, you know, my plan was to try to hook them up with the uh, socially conscious organization where they could do something on a higher level uh, just to show that they were, you know, uh, they were appreciative of the black community who invested in and did support their music. And so I tried to hook them up with Coretta Scott King and the uh, Martin Luther King Center for Social Change, which was being built in Atlanta at the time after Martin, Martin Luther King had passed. And uh, we did have an, an understanding on uh, what we were going to do. And I had suggested, you know, they, they give them, donate the benefits, uh, ticket sales from one concert that was going to happen in, in at the Omni Center in Atlanta. And that was what we had agreed to on paper. But as you find out in the book, it didn't materialize in the way that I had envisioned it. So um, it did, we did end up, um, the BGs did end up making a donation to them. Um, but it didn't cause, you know, to me, working the BGs out with Coretta Scott King, who was the leading civil rights, you know, probably the most prominent civil rights leader at that time. The two numbers I thought would have been historical, but it never ended up being historical. Yeah, and people will have to get the book to find out all of the other tidbits and details as to how it, how it I mean, it ended nicely, but with some things, well, they'll just have to read it and see. Yeah, <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. It was nice, you know, mm -hmm. nobody got the... But it was, it was, uh, it could have been handled differently. Yeah, much so. Well, to, well, of course, you know, with dimension, you know, about um, crossover music and artists and such, is black, black fame versus white fame? Is it in this era? Is it still important that black celebrities cross over to non-black audiences, or does it matter now? No, no, it matters as much now or more than ever before um, because, again, of the impact of social media and everything, that you, uh, it's still not, um, and I would say that any minorities that are, you know, trying to be successful, and, you know, that's the one thing that I like to establish about the book and about the 15 minutes is the reality is that I don't believe that fame is a destination, it's, it's an accolade and it's a reward for basically being successful. And a lot of what I talk about in the book in terms of your securing your 15 minutes is really about being successful at something and the more minutes that you acquire, then the more opportunities you get, the more money you can earn. And that's how that 15 minutes comes out there. I didn't come up with 15 minutes, it's a famous um, phrase that was coined by, or partially coined by Andy Warhol in the late 60s. And I, I just have always used it as a mantra, as a, uh, what, what does that mean in terms of an industry or in terms of a career, uh, since it's, it's been used usually in every, in, in relationship to entertainers more probably than anything else. Um, but I think the reality is, is yeah, there are two types of fame. There's black fame. That means your community likes you and loves you. But if nobody in the white community uh, knows about you, then you're not as famous as your white counterparts. And that's, uh, that's been, a, again, a, a key heel for black entertainers for many, many years. 
one in terms of getting exposed on television, in terms of getting exposed on radio, because most black radio stations don't have the bandwidth and the reach that the major pop stations have. Uh, black, the few black uh, TV shows that have been based around black entertainers don't have the same don't haven't secured the same amount of ratings, regular ratings. So the bigger shows like from Ed Sullivan to Johnny Carson um, to Oprah Winfrey, you know, the bigger the shows are with with the bigger white audiences, they enable a star to, you know, get mainstream appeal. And all those things are still evident. And even in social media, um, the majority of the most famous people on social media are not people that are, come from our new social media, you know, um, sensations there. It's the, the formats or all of the platforms are driven by stars who are already famous and who've helped to grow those platforms. So if you're not famous already before you're on social media, then the impact that social media can have on your career will be, you know, marginalized. So again, blacks, um, are constantly struggling, struggling for, you know, equal footing, um, not only in our society and our culture, but definitely in the entertainment industry and pretty much all other industries as well. Oh, definitely so. And of course, when you're talking about black fame versus white fame, it all boils down to dollars and cents, definitely so, which is where it counts the most. Yeah, fame is a, is a currency. You know, mm -hmm. ultimately it does become a currency if you know how to use it. Uh, it can become a liability as well, but it can also be, if it's used wisely and you, you have a great team uh, behind you, uh, I think that you can sustain a career over a longer period of time. Then, you know, say for someone that has two minutes of fame, they're not, you know, no one's going to even notice them. You know, they may have five minutes, maybe, maybe they, they can work. If they have 10 minutes, they, they're, they might, attain a level of popularity, but they're still not getting the bigger deals. You know, they're not getting the bigger opportunities where their brand identity would be stronger and more mainstream. But when you get 15 minutes, then you can have sustainability if you know how to manage it with the understanding that fame is fleeting anyways. And so your currency as it relates to fame is, is, is not going to stay consistent. And when you go through lulls, or failures, your bottom line can be affected by that. And, uh, you know, all the people that I chronicle in the book and every major client that I've worked and uh, they all have uh, worked with, represented, they've all taken a different path and they've all had to incur and get over lulls in their career. It's just, uh, it's nobody, I've never been associated with anybody who's maintained the same level of fame through the total, you know, span of their career. Okay, we're going to end uh, right here with Ramon Hervey, but next week we will have part two of my exclusive interview with him as he continues to talk about uh, his new book, The Fame Game. You don't want to miss this one because there's even more details to talk about behind the scenes of some of his famous celebrity clients that he's uh, managed. So that's it for this week's edition of the show. Thank you to all of my guests, and we'll see you guys on the next edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Bye-bye.